0: Hey Jay, what's Mr. M's deal? Ooh, that is a big question, Miles. He's one of the most powerful mutants ever documented with powers ranging from matter manipulation to telepathy to X-gene suppression, healing, phasing, pretty much the works. And he's from House of M, right? No, he's from Belgium.
1: Then where for Mr. M?
0: M is from Mercator,
1: as in the map.
0: As in Mr. M's surname.
1: Okay, that makes sense. An uncharacteristic amount of sense, actually. Is he still around? You'd think a mutant with that kind of power set would be more prominent.
0: Oh, actually, he hasn't really been around since shortly after M-Day.
1: Did he lose his powers?
0: No, he either died or turned into...
1: Psychic energy?
0: Butterflies. What?! I'm Jay Edidon.
1: And I'm Miles Stokes.
0: And we are here to explain the X-Men.
1: Because it's about time someone did.
0: Welcome to episode 275 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera.
1: You know, I think for a lot of podcasts, and certainly a lot of comic book titles, having a number like 275 would be a big deal, but for us, for us, it was Tuesday. Because we're recording on a Tuesday this week.
0: That's right. That That is how we're celebrating it being episode 275. I mean, would, would it really be something big? What, what was an X-Men two, 275 or Uncanny X-Men 275? It actually was a double-sized issue.
1: That was the story arc where, where the X-Men all met back up in space and Professor Xavier was disguised as like a Shi'ar dude and the Skrulls were impersonating everybody. But yeah, I mean, big deal. The team getting back together after the non-team era.
0: Oh, well... Now I feel like an underachiever. That's okay. We've got some cool comics to talk about today. I should say, by the way, um, in an ironic juxtaposition with The Underachievement, now that it is December, this is the month that the Thor novel that I co-wrote comes out, um, which you can pre-order Are you, should you be so inclined. It is a lot of fun. Um, I co-wrote it with Aaron Stewart on, Brian Keen, and Yun Ha Lee, who are all phenomenal and actually all significantly cooler than I am. And uh, it's rad. And it's got it's got a lot of Lila Cheney in it.
1: I'm always happy to see more of Lila. Me too. She, God, she was so fun to write. I believe it. We don't really see a lot of her in this era, unfortunately. Although we do have some good comics to talk about today. What are we talking about, Jay?
0: Well, today we've got three kind of... Varyingly quiet one-off issues. These are these are pretty much the brief breath that we get between the Phalanx Covenant and what's going to be the ramp up to Legion Quest and Age of Apocalypse.
1: Yeah, this era really does feel like the line is just racing from one event to the next to the next to the next. And don't get me wrong, I like most of those events, but it does mean that there's not a lot of time for the individual books to have much of their own plot lines going on.
0: It also makes everything feel a lot more fragmented, like we're going from event to event, so there's not really the same sense of long, ongoing continuity that there was before.
1: Yeah, and as someone whose favorite era is the 80s, that is not my favorite thing. I think that's part of why some of the books have suffered so much, in addition to creative teams changing constantly, but like Excalibur certainly is the biggest example. To a lesser extent, X-Factors, they just can't really build momentum.
0: Yeah, and those are, those are teams that tend to be sort of to the periphery of the big crossovers, too, that don't necessarily have a lot to do in them. And so when they're happening once or twice a year, that's a lot of lost time.
1: Well, thankfully, we both enjoy Quiet Issues, and even though one of these Quiet Issues involves a great deal of punching, I think they still all count, so... I mean, another one arguably
0: involves a great deal of shrieking.
1: I mean, okay, that's, that's true as well, but... Let's talk about them. We have an issue of X-Force, we have an issue of X-Factor, and we have an issue of Uncanny X-Men. Jay, where would you like to start?
0: Oh, gosh. Um, You know, I'm really—the two whose order I think is important are X-Force and Uncanny X-Men, and I was really, really torn about this, but I think, ultimately, how hard Uncanny X-Men hits is benefited more by having read X-Force first than the reverse—
1: Well, let's go ahead and start with X-Force, but before that, let's start with some backstory.
0: Way, way back during the fall of the mutants, X-Factor stole Apocalypse's base, an ancient and sentient celestial starship, appropriately named Ship. Ship served
1: as the team's home and friend for a while, before getting mostly blown up and sending its consciousness with baby Cable into the future.
0: Long story, it eventually got pulled out of his chest.
1: When Cable came back from the future, he brought Ship, now called Professor, with him in the form of his own orbital base, Graymalkin.
0: It's worth noting that between those two things, Ship basically lost its memory of having been Ship. It retained a lot of its data, but it didn't really have the personality, and it didn't really have the same connections to its previous contacts that it had before.
1: After Graymalkin was lost during Fatal Attractions, Cable installed what was left of Professor into the Tekken X-Force's base in Camp Verde, Arizona. What a long, strange ship it's been. Listeners, you can't see Jay silently shaking his head at me as we look at each other through FaceTime, but I assure you it's happening. I can confirm that.
0: So, all of that backstory brings us to X-Force number 39, Letting Go, written by Fabian Maceza, penciled by Tony Daniel, inked by Kevin Conrad, and colored by Marie Javins.
1: Now, before we get started, I'd like to bring something up that many of you listeners have brought up online in various ways, which is that we got done with the Phalanx Covenant recently, and we never once mentioned that the Phalanx are basically a great big ripoff of the Borg from Star Trek The Next Generation.
0: Um, except that they don't have individual bodies that can fuse and remeld in the ways that the Phalanx does.
1: Well, true, but a lot of the language is there, the hive mind is very similar, and I guess for me... I forgot to bring it up just because it seemed so obvious to me. I just thought everybody knew. But I guess we're a podcast, so we should, like, you know, talk about that stuff. So, sorry for not bringing up Star Trek.
0: See, I think of that as something that's such a widespread science fiction trope in general that I I didn't even necessarily make the connection. Like, I would have I would have picked those two both out as examples of it, but I didn't draw the parallel between them. I think probably because I I wasn't consuming either at the time that it came out.
1: Well, that's fair, but that's not the only reference we're going to have in the issue we're talking about right now, which does involve the phalanx, why I brought it up. The cover of this issue, which is Cable holding up the body of a little thin robot guy we haven't seen before, is an homage to both the cover to Uncanny X-Men number 136, where Scott is holding Dark Phoenix and yelling— and that famous cover of Superman holding Supergirl from DC's first Crisis. This is not the last cover homage we're going to be talking about in this episode.
0: Nor will it be the last time we'll see an homage to that specific cover. I'd say that that's one of of the most, if not the most, referenced covers in comics.
1: So you have, like, the different plot lines of man versus man, man versus himself, man versus Cameron Hodge, and then you have, like, the different col- cover archetypes of person holding other person while yelling and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, person throwing car, etc. hmm Now, look, I think we all know that I less have than am a massive soft spot for sympathetic AI stories. And uh, that's what this is, so I like this story because it's written for me. Also, apparently, the reason I didn't like Tony Daniel's art until now is that he wasn't drawing frolicking robots. He draws terrific frolicking robots. His humans and mutants, I would still leave. But man, really good frolicking robots.
1: So which frolicking robot do we get to hear about this time?
0: Well, this is Prosh, a character who we both have and haven't met. And... This, this fella makes his, his, his entrance when Domino is hanging out in the desert near Camp Verde and is almost smashed by a very friendly robot who jumps down to talk to her. It's Professor and he's got a body, kind of. Um, he's... Really cool looking. You want to talk about his design a little bit?
1: Yeah, so we'll find out that he essentially got a body when the Phalanx tried to take over X-Force's base while they were away. And so his body definitely has elements of the Phalanx. It's a sort of slim, clearly mechanical, very detailed robotic body. It's also colored yellow. But it has a lot more classic science fiction robot stuff worked in like the face looks partly like a skull and partly like Iron Man's mask and yet manages to look so endearing so human while clearly not being just an organic human being.
0: The face is elfin and tremendously expressive. And he also, something that he has in common with the phalanx, but but which happens in ways that aren't really drawn in the phalanx style, so look different, is that he tends to incorporate bits of nearby machinery or scenery into his body. like Or or his body extends in odd ways that aren't quite attached to it. It's really, really cool looking. Now, this guy, this is, this is sort of... The Professor and sort of Ship, and he is in fact these days going by Prosh, which is a mashup of Professor and Ship, which is a really charming choice. I mean, he just
1: got used to this whole having a body thing. He's got a lot on his mind. But I agree, it is charming. It's kind of a dumb name, and I like that, because so much of Prosh is that he's new. Like, yes, the Professor slash Ship has been around for hundreds, if not probably, I think, thousands of years at this point. Definitely thousands of years.
0: But it's been cracking wise for all of those, and it's always had—it's always been kind of friendly and open in a way that I feel like just gets amplified in its embodiment. Yeah,
1: like when X-Force brings him back to their main Camp Verde base to recharge, because he's basically out of power, like, as soon as he wakes up, he is a delighted child on Christmas. He's—I guess it's just childlike. That's what it is. There's this innocence and this enthusiasm that is there for— From the start and we haven't seen that in ship nearly in the same way before
0: well because ship has always when we've seen ship come in ship has always been tired ship has always been coming at the end of a long journey or still fighting and this is this is different and yeah he loves having a body and he's delighted at it and every experience is new and novel he gets to he gets to wake up he's overjoyed at the idea of getting to to finally try coffee, which Cable loves so much. Um, he's he's just—and he's and he's still smart. He's still got all of that knowledge. But he gets to be a person in the ways that the people he's built his life around and cared for for thousands of years are.
1: And one of the things I really appreciate here is that he knows X-Force, and obviously Cable especially, so, so well. They're not really sure what to make of him, but to him— He just has these new ways of interacting with them, and I enjoy how caught off-guard they all are. Like, at one point, uh, X-Force is talking about, what if he's just another killer robot? And he says, as he kisses Domino on the forehead...
2: How would you feel about a lady killer robot?
0: It's very the first time you see your friends after starting social transition.
1: That makes a lot of sense, actually, yeah.
0: Complete with the robotness.
1: (laughs) Right. So I really like this as a follow-up to the Phalanx Covenant because it's a standalone issue, but it does work in the fact that all the Phalanx stuff going on, I mean, they were trying to take over the world. It would have had other effects than what we saw in the specific story, the Phalanx Covenant. And I like that it's almost an afterthought that, oh, the Phalanx came into X-Force's base and accidentally gave Prosh a body as he absorbed them. Like, it's just such a cool little side
0: note. I want to talk a little bit about how Prosh got the body because I think it's pretty rad and because it kind of makes a lot of sense. So one of one of the temporarily isolated away mission phalanx came in, connected to a terminal in X-Force's headquarters and tried to download and was basically entirely discorporated, like their mind was entirely knocked out by the sheer volume of data and personality in Professor's neural network. He basically did the sinister switch, what happens when Rogue tries to absorb sinister's powers.
1: It's pretty great. And that'll show you, Phalanx, that this is what you get when you find a stranger in Arizona. Or is it New Mexico? One of those.
0: It's so much nicer than what you get when you meet a stranger in the Alps. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: But I love the dynamic here, because Prosh is so playful, and he's actually a little irresponsible. Like, he lets slip to the team that Domino's first name is Beatrice, which they're all like, wait, what? And this is the first time we hear that Shatterstar's real name is Gavidra7. So, do you know what that means, Jay? What? It means that there's a chance that Prosh is a leprechaun, because it was leprechauns that first told everyone that Wolverine's first name is Logan.
0: Oh shit, you're right. Or that leprechauns are all sentient AIs. Created by the Celestials? Yes. They're very small for Celestial creation. Celestials tend to go oversize. I mean, maybe Celestials actually have the same average
1: size as human beings, it's just that they're all really, really big or really, really small. That seems
0: perilous and implausible.
1: I mean, the Celestials are pretty scary. Maybe that's just part of why.
0: Well, and the Celestials are perilous and implausible.
1: Indeed they are. Well, I feel like this episode is going well already. We've established that the celestial ship that Apocalypse rode around in was actually- Wait,
0: Shit, I've got it. I've got it. So, remember the first episode of Gravity Falls? Oh yeah. Remember the gnomes? Yes. Remember what they could do?
1: Merge into one giant gnome. Mm Mm-hmm. Ah, when you get enough leprechauns in one place, they turn into a celestial spaceship.
0: Yes, and see, since we've been talking about the phalanx and we know that that if they're at least part robot, if they're celestial tech, they may have the power to basically modularly merge to some extent. Clearly, that's what's going on here.
1: It all comes together. This was all planned from the start, from X-Men number one in 1963.
0: You just see Stan and Jack being like, all comes down to the leprechauns.
1: Oh, man. Hickman, you really, really missed an opportunity here.
0: We don't know that. There's still still a fair ways to go.
1: Anyway, the only other thing I want to point out about the characters who show up to hang out with Prashir is that Richter has a very new look, he's a lot slimmer, and his new haircut is also basically Jane's haircut from Daria. And I don't know what to make of that, but there you go.
0: You know, it... I... he's... I, I can sort of see that being a fashion exchange happening. Um, but back to Prosh. Prosh is rechargeable, and he's he's rechargeable without making too big a dent in X-Force's considerable, considerable energy flow, because they need a lot. They're running this whole complex, They've but they've got future fusion cells. So they'll be okay, except for one major, major problem. Prosh creates some kind of interference field that messes with anything electronic. So, not only their data readouts, but also their, their ship and also Cable himself.
1: Yeah, his techno organics are starting to get all spiky and weird in a very weapon X y fashion, actually.
0: Now, Prosh doesn't know any of this, and they don't know for sure that Prosh is the one causing it.
1: And so, as all these weirdnesses are going on, we see so many scenes of Prosh interacting with the team, and he immediately fits in. Like Cable, he's both a mentor and, to an extent, a peer. And I appreciate that the issue manages to get across that he and Cable don't overshadow each other. And part of that is because Cable's techno-organics are weird, and so he's kind of off the scene. But you get the strong impression that the status quo could have continued like this. Prosh could have been a part of this family because X-Force in this era, now that Cable's gotten so much softer, is more and more of a family. And that's what makes it tragic when we find out that, yeah, Prosh's electronics are indeed what's messing with everything.
0: Prosh is, of course, absolutely horrified and he plans to discorporate and just going back to being a disembodied program immediately. That's his first instinctual immediate response. And X-Force says, well... No, because this is so important to you and this has brought you so much joy. There's there's another option where you and Cable can both live. And they tell Ka- Prash that, um, you know, he's, he's, he's talked about wanting to explore, wanting to really test the limits of, of embodiment. They tell him, well, you want to explore, you could fly to the stars, but you got to get far away from here. There's a limit to the, the range of, of this field you create. You guys just can't be, you know, within the same planet or so. So for Prash to do this, for him to be able to go into orbit, though the cost is pretty high, he's going to have to cannibalize pretty much the entirety of Camp Verde to do, to get the sufficient mass and power to launch himself um, out of orbit.
1: And I really appreciate how immediately cool with this warpath is. Because remember, Camp Verde is the reservation where he grew up. It's where his family lived before they were all killed by, at this point, mysterious antagonists. But his take is, you know what? If... What's left of my home, as long as you just, you know, leave the part where my family's buried alone, can be part of birthing new life into the universe, then I think that would be something that my family and my people would really have approved of. And that's pretty awesome. I like Warpath, and we don't see a lot of his depth aside from mooning over Siren and being angry about his family getting killed. But every once in a while, you get that that nobility that I think we used to see more of back when he was on the Hellions.
0: And you see the complexity of his relationship to place and to the team, which I think is important, which is, which is something I really would have liked to have seen more during X-Force's tenure at Camp Faraday.
1: And so that's what's going to happen. Prash is going to go into space, and these characters may or may not ever see each other again. And Prash and Cable's goodbye is perfectly beautifully sad.
2: I will miss all of you so much. And you most of all, Nathan. I have watched over you since you were a lad. I have seen you struggle through a life of such loss, sadness, and tragedy that a lesser man would have been crushed long ago. It only made you stronger. And I leave now, like a father, proud to see his son having become a stronger man, a better person than he has ever been in his entire difficult life.
0: To which Cable responds,
2: even though I was blind to it for so long, Prash, you were,
1: and have always been, the best friend I ever had.
0: And that's when Cable sacrifices himself to um, get the Enterprise started again so that they can fight Khan and avoid the Genesis wave.
1: Yeah, well. But this is beautiful. It's sad. There's so much history with these characters. And that's something that I wanted to ask you about, Jay, because what we have here— is an entire gigantic arc that could have played out easily over the course of six issues or even more, like in the background, of Prosh getting a body, becoming a more active and human member of the X-Force family, and then having to leave, and it's crammed here into a single issue. What do you think about that?
0: I don't think it's crammed in. I think if you put it in another arc, like you said, it would have been in the background. It would have been B-plot. This way, it's a small story. It's a short story. But it's a story that gets to actually exist on its own. And for this particular story, I think that's a really good thing.
1: No, that makes a lot of sense. So we actually will see Prosh again a long time from here in the 2001 miniseries X-Men Forever, as distinct from Chris Claremont's X-Men Forever alternate future series. This miniseries is actually written by Fabian Nasieza. it's where some of the characters like Mystique and Toad end up looking more like their movie
0: counterparts, and, uh,
1: yeah, Prosh shows up again, which I wouldn't have expected, but there you go.
0: Well, given the time travel and given his nature, I don't think it's ever too surprising for him to pop up. Speaking of characters who pop up a lot, let's go over to X-Factor, where we're gonna see actually one of the X-Men's first antagonists making an appearance— But first,
1: some background.
0: Before joining everyone's favorite government-sponsored mutant team X-Factor, Strong Guy used to have a pretty different gig.
1: He was a roadie and bodyguard for intergalactic rock star Lila Shaney.
0: I got to write her. Yeah. I'm still not really over that.
1: But these days, Strong Guy is a much more mature and selfless dude, thanks to having found a true home and family with X-Factor.
0: And you can tell by the sheer volume of dad jokes.
1: Yeah, I I love his jokes. I mean, well, some of them haven't aged well, but mostly I love his jokes.
0: You know what I love? I love the title of X-Factor 107.
1: That's right, because it is called Punch-O-Rama, it's written by Todd DeZago, penciled by Paul Borges, inked by Al Milgram, and colored by Glynis Oliver. And this is actually Todd DeZago's only solo issue. He'd been working with other people uh, doing the script, I believe, but not the plot for a while. This is all him. And I gotta say, it's really fun. Yeah,
0: uh, solid work, DeZago.
1: Mm-hmm. The title actually kind of sums it up. This is not a very deep issue, it's just a super brawl between Strong Guy and... The Blob. But this is a superhero comic. Sometimes you can do that, and that's okay as long as you do it well. And this issue does it well.
0: You know what it feels like to me? feels like a kid playing with action figures, like in the best of ways.
1: Oh yeah, just banging them against each other and having the uh, tides of the battle turn, and one character's winning sometimes, the other character's winning other times.
0: Throw one across the room and it lands near the planes, and you know.
1: Exactly. And I love the way it starts, because the entire issue is captioned with Guido's narration. Okay, so this is what happened, right? And that's the tone we get. So Guido was catching a flight to see Lila Shaney's new concert. He figured maybe they could patch things up, because back in X Factor number 93, when she kidnapped him naked to try to get him to rejoin the tour, he said no. He said he didn't want to be such a a hedonist and... So selfish anywhere, he wanted to be with his family. And she was pissed, and that was sad.
0: And he was naked.
1: Also naked. At the airport, though, as he was about to fly to Lila's show, he saw the blob hijacking a plane. You know, Fred J. Dukes, like you said, J., one of the X Men's earliest foes. Usually a combination punching bag and laughing stock, because meh. But uh, he's really fun in this issue.
0: He's also solidly formidable. Part of why he's able to serve as as often being a punching bag is that he's pretty much impossible to damage and very nearly impossible to move. In a lot of ways, this is unstop- this issue is unstoppable force meets immovable object. Um, and it, it makes him a really interesting foil to strong guy. Now, Guido, of course, goes to stop Blob from hijacking the plane, and they, as superheroes and supervillains do, get in an all-out knockdown drag out brawl.
1: And the issue basically opens with Blob jumping on Guido and crunching him, then picking him up by his little forehead hair thing and punching him across the entire airport. That's one of the fun things about these characters, about this unstoppable force and immovable object, is because they're both essentially indestructible and super strong, it's pretty much a superhero Looney Tunes episode.
0: Well, and they're both very physically cartoonish, and their powers work and interact with their bodies in very physically cartoonish ways. You can do a lot with implied motion with both of these characters.
1: And they're also good foils for each other. I mean, both of them are really big dudes who have taken a lot of shit because of their size. They're both secretly sensitive, and they both have lots of bluster and uh, cover their pain-slash-sensitivity-slash-whatever with jokes of varying quality.
0: And they both are, at least Guido, very much keys in on and appreciates that about the Blob. One of the first things he notices is that the Blob is his blob is just incredibly quick and incredibly nimble and incredibly effective. And that basically, when he talks about and refers to, to blob size, it's largely the way that Blob is able to weaponize it.
1: But not entirely. I mean, there are definitely some fat jokes here. And, I don't know, on the one hand the comic does often lampshade Guido being a bit of an insensitive jerk and like making fun of anybody who wants to be uh, talked to nicely because the 90s made fun of political correctness a lot. And that was weird. And so I don't think it's necessarily shown as what a person should be doing, but there are still a lot of those jokes in here.
0: Well, it's not shown as what a person should be doing, but it's also an area that for a long time and still to some extent is treated as a neutral space that 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 fat people are among the groups that it's socially acceptable to be cruel to. So while it's not saying that Guido should be doing this, it's not doing anything to change or undercut or challenge that idea.
1: Yeah, I, um, I actually am thinking of Leah Williams' Age of X-Men, The Extremists for my favorite version yeah. of Blob because that takes place in yeah. a universe where people having different kinds of bodies is just taken as normal. And so Blob gets the room to be a character who didn't have to react to all that abuse, although he certainly had his own kind of hard life. And he is fascinating and awesome in that series. And I love his mustache.
0: Yeah, that's – I mean, I, I, I'm I, going to recommend, and actually in context of this, that folks go back to and listen to our live Emerald City episode where we talked to three of the Age of X-Men authors, including Leanne, where Leah talked a lot about what it meant to have Blob be the character that he was in context of that comic, and the ways in which his previous representations fed into and reinforced a lot of really, really abusive and harmful tropes, which, which I think— are all in play here, maybe less centrally than they've been sometimes just because of the nature of this story, but I think it's something it's good context for have to have any time that you're reading a story where Blob is centered or a major antagonist.
1: Totally. But all of that said, what this issue mainly is, like we were saying, is an incredible fight scene, and I want to talk about this fight scene. At one point both characters The fight has moved on to this moving luggage truck, which is on a collision course with a conveniently parked gas truck. And as the driver bails, suddenly Guido and Blob are kind of on the same side because they don't want to get blown up and die. And they become this sort of hilarious, odd couple in this very cartoonish fashion as Blob yells
0: Turn left! Turn left!
1: Is that my left or your left?
0: It's the same thing!
1: This makes me want to see more of these characters together. Like I never would have thought of Strong Guy and the Blob of all characters as having an interesting dynamic, but uh, yeah, they're great.
0: Yeah, they're 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 fun and interesting. And also I like how immediately they team up and stop fighting when they realize they're about to hit the gas truck. Like obviously this is more important. They do nick the truck, which means that their later on fight where where Guido Um, knocks away a bunch of cement from under the blob and unearths some electrical cables results in a giant explosion.
1: Yeah, and I appreciate that the first explosion of the truck has a blammo sound effect, both because that's a fun sound effect, and because earlier Guido was yelling at the driver to turn or else there was going to be a blammo. And he called it, he called the exact sound effect.
0: Actually, I should say that the explosion I I described, or the context of it is the second explosion. There's a a first smaller one when they first nick the truck, I guess.
1: Yes, lots of explosions, because fight scene. And the fight scene continues as Blob jumps onto a airplane that's trying to land, and knocks Guido off the landing gear, and Guido's about to fall to his death, and in fact falls through five floors of an air traffic control tower.
0: Now, for most folks, this would be a problem. For Guido, this is also a problem, but for different reasons. See, his deal is that he absorbs energy and converts it to mass, the more... He gets hit the more he picks up, the bigger and stronger he gets. But that really, really screws him up if he doesn't have a chance to release it quickly. And it puts tremendous strain on his body.
1: Yeah, and also he starts to really worry as the fight drags on, as he's falling through these various floors and getting bigger and bigger, because what if he misses his flight? What if he can't see Lila and something happens to her and he never has a chance to make up with her? One of the things I like about Guido is you get these tiny little looks into that sad sensitive, anxious, lonely core here and there. And I appreciate that what's largely a fight scene issue does a little bit of that, too.
0: Yeah, very much.
1: The way Borges draws Guido fully, fully powered up, like, with his muscles just ridiculously gigantic, it's this wonderful, painful grotesquerie. Like, what if superhero physique? But too much! Like, way too much! It's pretty awesome. But Guido needs it because the Blob decides to fly the plane directly into Guido, and coincidentally, the airport terminal, which would, like, kill everybody.
0: Well, he needs it, but stopping the plane doesn't help because, again, it's that impact, and he's just absorbing more and more. And finally, he does the thing that I described earlier, which is is you know, as he's fighting the Blob, and he, he, does, he does effectively stop the plane. It, it doesn't Get rid of the ex- ex- excess mass, in fact, it adds to it, because he's, you know, again getting that impact, but he does actually pull it off.
1: I gotta tell ya, at that moment I was feeling very heroic. The next moment I was feeling really stupid. I mean, I came down to the airport to catch a plane, but come on!
0: Ah, uh, At which point he does the thing I was talking about earlier, which is to rip out the concrete under where Blob is standing. He actually rips Blob up, but the concrete under his feet comes with him. Which is, I'm going to go ahead and say, kind of a stretch in terms of interpretations of Blob's of powers and how they would how they would act actually work. But the important thing is that the wires get get ripped out. There's a huge explosion, which Guido drags Fred out of. And um, although as he narrates it, well,
1: you can guess what happened next. The fire reached the fuel truck, and we were both killed in the explosion. Nah, I'm just playing with you.
0: What is this, Prince of Persia?
1: Right. And just as X-Factor arrives, having seen the fight on the news, Guido, having won, collapses. And it's funny! But also, he mentioned earlier in the fight that his chest was getting kind of tight, and in fact, he's going to start having heart problems that are going to be a big deal to the plot pretty soon. So, a little bit of continuity there in your fight scene issue.
0: Yeah, that was definitely a fun slapstick heart attack.
1: Hooray! And on that note... Let's talk about some X-Men. Some uncanny X-Men, specifically.
0: Well, with the Phalanx Covenant finally over, Banshee and the White Queen have rescued a bunch of mutant teenagers.
1: Monet Saint-Croix is rich and strong and psychic and perfect. Everett Thomas
0: is a chill dude who can mimic other mutants' powers.
1: Angelo Espinoza has lots of extra prehensile skin and is very grumpy about that and, like, everything.
0: Page Guthrie, Cannonball's sister, also has a skin-based superpower. Specifically, she can rip hers off, revealing other substances. Sort of shape-shifting. It's gross as hell. And we have Jubilation Lee. Hey, hey that's, that's Jubilee. We know her. Speaking of Jubilee, she has been having more and more mixed feelings about being an X-Man, um, what with the fact that they keep on dying and getting attacked and her life is kind of terrible.
1: And speaking of terrible lives, Cyclops and Jean Grey just got back from their time-traveling honeymoon where they raised young Cable for 12 years before getting tragically ripped away back to the present day.
0: And that brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 318, Moving Day. This is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Roger Cruz, inked by Tim Townsend, and colored by Steve Buccalato.
1: And before we dive in... I want to talk about something that I'd actually forgotten, but was reminded of by Austin of Examinations on The Real Gentleman of Leisure, which is that November 1994, uh, of which this is the first issue we're talking about, was when X-Men started publishing in two simultaneous formats. We'd seen a little bit of that before with various crossovers where the shiny, fancy covers that made the comic more expensive were only one possible cover. You'd also get another one that was just regular, and now every month there was a deluxe format of all the X books. The price went from a buck fifty to a buck ninety five. The higher quality paper made the colors really freaking pop. It looked awesome. And unfortunately, they stopped putting the issue number on the covers. I have no idea why, Ooh. but as someone who was very organized with his comics, it made me sad. I was also made sad by that extra 45 cents an issue, because my allowance was, was not that much. But goddamn, those books looked good.
0: As far as the issue number, I'm guessing it was just to have one less thing over the art.
1: Maybe, Yeah.
0: This is definitely one of those covers that has stuck with me, by the way. This is a very wistful Jubilee with a duffel bag in the foreground and Professor X watching her go um, with a hazy lineup of X-Men behind them. It's, it's really wistful, it's really lovely, and it really conveys what it's shooting for and the tone of the issue.
1: It also looks a hell of a lot like another iconic X-Men cover, that being Uncanny Number 138 when Cyclops leaves the team with an almost identical position and lineup after the Dark Phoenix saga.
0: And a very similar duffel bag. I wonder if it's the same duffel bag. That would be kind of a great detail. But no, I, I think there are some some really important differences here. Just in the tone of the cover, in what they're walking away from. Because this is, there. there is no, the, you don't get the hazy, remembered X-Men in Scots. You just get this, like, gray cluster of sad X-Men in the aftermath of Jean's funeral. And him just sort of walking away, looking down. And Jubilee is just, is standing with her duffel bag. And she's sort of looking up into the distance, into the future. It's
1: not the only issue that's homaged number 138, though, because 138 was also homaged in 151 with Kitty, New Mutants number 99 with Sunspot, X-Force number 44 with Cannonball, Wolverine number 65 with Wolverine, X-Men number 57 with Xavier, Gen Next number one with a whole team, and Ultimate X-Men number 80 with, again, Wolverine plus lots of other covers by lots of other comics companies. I especially like uh, Buffy Season 8 number 35's B cover uh, that Dark Horse did, which has Buffy doing the same thing. Um, anyway, it's homaged even more than that one we were talking about before.
0: Well, all of that Buffy series, every, every cover is specifically an homage to a different um, superhero comic cover. There's a Superman one, too.
1: Yeah, that was pretty rad. Uh, but anyway, the comic itself...
0: Right. So we've got a couple parallel stories here, Um, and all of them start as workers take down the Xavier School for the Gifted Youngster sign, and Angelo Espinoza's skin tries to hitchhike away. Now, the sign situation is actually a gift from Emma Frost, and she's commissioned a new sign. The Xavier School... Um, as you might recall, is moving to the former digs of the Massachusetts Academy. The mansion is now the Xavier Institute for Higher Learning, and Emma is supervising the installation of the new sign. She's also made a very specific change to her look. This is the first time we're ever going to see her wearing an X-Men logo. She's got two, one is on her bodice, and the other is a charm hanging from a choker, which is some interesting symbolism, considering the complexity of her relationship to the X-Men.
1: Ooh, yeah. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. And speaking of her relationship to the X-Men, the scene that comes from here is fascinating.
0: Yeah, Bobby Drake is lurking in the bushes, and he would very, very much like to have a word with her.
1: Frost, I was hoping...
0: I can't hear you.
1: I... I was hoping that we could talk about what happened.
0: Exactly which what would that be?
1: You want me to say it out loud? Fine. When you took over my body, when you violated my mind, you did things with my ice powers that I never... Things I haven't figured out yet on my own. I just felt that after everything that happened, you owed me.
0: So she points out that they both know exactly why he's so hesitant about his powers. And one of the things she keeps going back to in this conversation is forcing him to say what he wants, to not just beat around it. And especially in retrospect, and especially knowing that this was the era where creators were starting to talk openly about wanting to write Bobby as gay, that's really, really an interesting detail considering what he does say and what he doesn't say and his specific reluctance to express what he wants and even what he wants to talk about. Finally, after he pushes for a while, she basically twists something in his head and snaps him into the spiky ice form that she had. And it's not what he's expecting. What are you doing? I'm giving you what you asked for. You want power. You want to be dangerous, to be in control. You want the respect you'll only get when you stop being the ineffectual clown that you are. Say it, Drake. Say it's what you want.
1: Yes, I want all those things.
0: Fine. Then learn how to do them on your own. I showed you a glimpse of your full potential. It's up to you to do something with that information. Whether that drives you forward or drives you crazy makes absolutely no difference to me.
1: God damn, Emma Frost.
0: That's my Emma, not good, not nice, just right. She
1: refuses to let people coast, and I think that's one of the things that makes her oftentimes a good teacher, if a ruthless one.
0: Yeah, she is... Challenging people is is fundamental to her as a teacher, and as a person, and as a partner, and as a teammate. And I think this, this scene really, really gets to the core of that.
1: I think it also explains why she has a co-headmaster in Banshee, because we've seen that her approach is just too far in one direction, and they really balance each other out, and I like that.
0: Yeah, and that's something that Emma herself learns to recognize later, I think, in some really cool ways, like that, that she is at her best with a restraining influence to push back against. Now, speaking of a character who in the future will be one of those restraining influences... Back at stately Xavier Manor, Scott and Jean are debriefing from their future adventures. They've got some info, potentially, about the origins of the legacy virus, which will ultimately come to nothing, and Scott is still beating himself up for abandoning Nathan again, which is even sadder in context of X-Force 39.
1: He and Jean have come to talk to Professor Xavier to get some advice, but Xavier's dealing with his old shit, because remember, in the Phalanx Covenant, all of his computer files, all of his research, was destroyed.
0: Not all of it. The stuff that's about how to kill the X-Men is apparently still around.
1: Oh, yeah, that'll be a thing later.
0: Maybe he, those are just the first files he remakes after this. Now, Scott and Jean, for their part, are also moving into the boathouse so they can have some goddamn privacy for once in their lives, and Gambit helps Scott move their stuff in and has some really complicated feelings about it, because to him, Scott and Jean represent kind of a wholesome fairy tale idea of love and, and of, of a normal life that he feels like he can never really have.
1: Yeah, Scott and Remy are not characters you see interact very much, aside from, you know, clashing because it's fun or dealing with missions and combat situations, and turns out there's some interesting stuff there, because when it comes down to it, they're each their own kind of romantic. They've just led very, very different lives.
0: Was this during the period when they were considering building Gambit up as the Third Summer's brother? I think that was initially a
1: Claremont idea, and since Claremont was gone at this point, I'm going to say probably not.
0: It's, it's interesting either way, the ways they interact and seeing more of that in this scene, because while obviously they're very, very different people, they've got some striking commonalities in their backgrounds that it, it would have been nice to see the comics explore more. For now, once he realizes that Gambit is actually being serious, Scott tentatively tries to have a real conversation, but immediately worries that he's being way too nosy and apologizes, so if you need me, I will be over here over-identifying with Cyclops.
1: Does that mean you're also wearing a polo shirt tucked into khaki shorts pulled up way too high? Maybe. Back in town, the kids who are very shortly going to be Generation X are on a shopping spree thanks to M's platinum credit card because, of course, she's ridiculously wealthy. And their dynamic here, it's just its just here. It's full-formed. We've seen the characters together a little bit in Generation Next during the Phalanx Covenant, but more and more, these are just teenagers that make sense together.
0: Remember how we talked about the difference between Boom Boom and Jubilee and how a lot of it had to do with with class? Yeah. So I was thinking about that because this scene specifically strikes me as kind of the upscale version of the Exterminators scene where they break into the department store.
1: That's a really good point, actually. Yeah. And certainly these kids from different backgrounds who are kind of out on their own together for the first time. Yeah, it's a lot New Mutants, but I agree. It's also a lot Exterminators.
0: They're not quite out on their own. Um, They've got chaperones. The chaperones are just sitting at a sidewalk cafe watching them. These are Storm and Bishop and Banshee. And Storm and Bishop are giving Banshee kind of a pep talk about the kids, uh, which ends with Banshee concluding,
1: They're gonna bury me alive, aren't they?
0: I mean, yeah, basically.
1: And so later, Jubilee, back at the X-Mansion, starts to say goodbye to what's been her first real home in a long time. She's been around here... Since 1989's Uncanny X-Men number 244, I mean, not at the mansion, but with the X-Men in some form, that is a long, long time. And even though she's going to be around some of the same characters, that's a hell of a change for a girl who's been looking for stability for so long.
0: Three years is forever in teenager years. Totally is. And... She's interrupted by a character who she's interacted with very little. This is Archangel who stops to say goodbye, and she immediately blows up at him. How dare he na- do this now when he hardly ever even talked to her or interacted with her when she was with the team when she was living there? Mostly, you know, he, he he he's a little bit taken aback, and ultimately she tells them, well, mostly she's scared of the idea of people losing each other without saying how much they care if they they only ever say goodbye to each other. Like, she didn't Really get to have that with her parents and she regrets it. And now she's worried about him. And it's, it is the sweetest, like, kid worrying about a grown up in a way that doesn't really quite get to the full depth of what's going on, but is incredibly kind scene that just kind of tugs all my heartstrings.
1: People sometimes talk about Jubilee being just a replacement for Shadow Cat or being redundant to Boom Boom, but I think this is an area where well, that's not the case, because Jubilee is far more of a kid, I think, than either of them ever were. I mean, Shadowcat was so eager to grow up so quickly to be one of the grown-ups. and as like a super smart kid, that makes some sense. And Boom Boom had been through such trauma and such shit that she just distanced herself and would never open up emotionally except when she was pushed to the edge. But with Jubilee, those feelings are right there beneath that sarcastic surface, not buried deeply at all.
0: Yeah, so finally she heads down to say goodbye to the professor who's just finished giving yet another pep talk to a very nervous banshee.
1: And the scene where Jubilee leaves? There's very little dialogue. It's mostly just images. But what she says to Professor Xavier kind of makes my eyes get wet. Uh,
0: Thank you, Professor Xavier, for knowing when to hold on and when to let go.
1: Because that's what it is. Oh, man. I know she's gonna get a super awesome uniform and to hang out with some characters I really like, but it is sad.
0: It's also sad that she's specifically going to the kids' team to get away from the trauma, because, like, Jubilee, did you read New Mutants? Seriously, that comic is gonna, theoretically,
1: get turned into a horror movie, and with good reason! You won't be safe there at all. You won't be safe anywhere, because you're in a superhero comic.
0: Aw, buddy. So... I mentioned when we first ta- started talking about this issue that something else was happening outside the Xavier Institute while Emma was installing the sign, and that was that Angelo, that Skin, was trying to hitchhike away. And he gets a ride, which is good, but because he's on the Xavier Mansion access road still, that ride is beast.
1: And Beast agrees to drive Angelo to the airport, but he's singing along to the stones on the radio, having a good time, and Angelo is pissed and snaps the radio off and snaps at Beast. Is this all life is to you, McCoy? One big series of laughs and songs and dances? Maybe you don't know this, tucked away in your make-believe X world, but there is an entire planet out there of people who are hurting, suffering, starving.
0: Hmm. I see. You're afraid my constant singing might distract them from their otherwise moribund musings? Interesting.
1: No, it's just that Beast being all happy-go-lucky is stressing Angelo out.
0: And when Angelo is stressed, he loses control of his powers, and man, I sympathize real hard with this kid right now. A detail I really like, by the way, um, is that Angelo's first language is Spanish, and Beast is fluent in Spanish, and Beast and Angelo speak to each other, like Beast switches to Spanish when Angelo's starting to get stressed, and the Spanish isn't translated.
1: That's really neat, yeah. I I think it just, it's hard to explain, but it really does, for me, show that Beast is willing to go out of his defaults, to go out of his way, and I think the comic making us go out of our way, unless we're native Spanish speakers, which you and I are very much not, uh, that really emphasizes it.
0: Well, it's, uh, you don't really need to be a native Spanish speaker to read it. I mean, I have a couple years of high school Spanish and had no problem with it.
1: Right. I just mean by making it even a little less convenient, it does convey that sensitivity.
0: Well, yeah, it, it centers the experience and the language and the cultural context of a character with whom the default sense of, of who's reading this doesn't necessarily overlap. And I think that's really important. Yeah. Beast- ultimately offers Angelo some fairly heavy-handed best wishes and and gives him the keys to the car and it's like, if you need if if you want to go go, um, I can just walk back. And Angelo speeds off to the airport, but sometime off the panel he changes his mind because minutes after Jubilee and Banshee leave, Angelo pulls up in front of the school and tells Xavier that he wants to give it a try.
1: And so Xavier sends Angelo after Banshee saying, hey, if you hurry, maybe you can uh, catch up.
0: I'm not sure what he's going to do if he catches up. Like, is he supposed to just, like, jump real fast from one car to the other? I don't know, but it's sweet. It is sweet. Now, this is, this is, I miss this version of Professor Xavier, who, the one who, like, grew and changed and learned things about letting go.
1: I've said it before and I'll say it again, 90s Professor X is my favorite Professor X. I mean, modern Professor X is fascinating, but Charles Xavier as written in the early to mid-1990s? I fucking love that guy.
0: Yeah, this is maybe the version of Professor X I'm capable of kind of almost liking. (laughs) Um, But the whole era is very, very autumnal feeling in, in, in a nice way.
1: It is, yeah, and I don't know if that's just because all of Lobdell's quiet issues bring me back to Uncanny 308, like the engagement issue of Scott and Jean, but mm-hmm. yeah, it all feels of a kind, and it's it's comforting, it feels like home. Could also just be because I grew up on these comics.
0: Do you ever have, are there issues of comics ever that you just have a specific song that goes with? You know,
1: as much as I enjoy all kinds of music, I tend not to overlap music with comics. And I think part of that is because I'm a terrible multitasker. And so I would always, always read in silence.
0: So I don't necessarily, and in fact, I don't usually, and I don't generally listen to music with lyrics as I'm reading, but man, from almost the first page of this, I had Dar Williams End of the Summer just stuck in my head.
1: Oh, yeah. That's that's a really good parallel. And listeners, if you haven't heard that song, I mean, maybe singer-songwriter folk rock is your thing. Maybe it's not, but it is a beautiful song about endings and about letting go.
0: You know, I don't fucking care if singer-songwriter folk rock is your thing. Dar Williams is amazing, and you should listen to her.
1: Yeah, she's great. She really is. People who are also great are our listeners, and they've got questions.
0: Car Crash Carlos asks on Tumblr... How is it that Dazzler can't die? I'm reading A-Force and she mentions that she's got a limited number of lives like a cat, but I can't seem to find out why exactly.
1: Oh boy. Okay, so... Back in the 80s, there was a bunch of foreshadowing about Dazzler dying. When she went to that Crystal Palace with that mostly naked guy that Wolverine had a drop of blood that he regenerated from and saved the world, she saw all these different visions of her future, and she died in all of them. And I think at one point there was even more foreshadowing when she looked into the Siege Perilous or something like that. But the point is, Chris Claremont, as I understand it, and thanks to Brian Cronin at Comic Book Resources for digging all this up, was planning to kill Dazzler back in the Outback era. But for some reason, Claremont changed his mind and instead, quote, killed Rogue by having her go through the Siege Perilous with Master Mold instead. There had also around this time been various intimations that Dazzler couldn't die. Kind of like that one episode of The X-Files where Scully finds out that she can't die. Kind of like that. And similarly not followed up on for quite a while. Back in 2006's New Excalibur, though, which was written by Chris Claremont, Dazzler dies in the first issue, and then she dies more and more, and she keeps coming back. And it seemed like this was going to be a big part of New Excalibur's plot, but it was never resolved for some reason. There was some creator and character talk about Dazzler maybe being an external at around this time and a little later, but nothing ever came of that, uh, which is probably for the best because I don't like the externals. What a fit, though. So, yeah, that's what Dazzler is referring to in A-Force. My understanding, unless I and my reading and my internet research are incorrect, is that that still hasn't been explained. We just know that when Dazzler dies, she gets better. For some reason. Mojo's Work asks on Tumblr, The X-Men are getting a set of six Happy Meal toys. Which characters do you use, and what are the toys' special features, if any?
0: So I thought about this long and hard, and... As an adult with a possibly skewed sense of what's appropriate for children, here are my six picks. First, obviously, I think, is Glob Herman. He's gonna be pink, he's translucent, he's got innards, he's probably squishy. He kind of reminds me of this old Ninja
1: Turtles action figure I had way back in the day called Mutagen Man, who had this torso that was this hollow, transparent, plastic shape, and the deal was you would pour this slimy stuff inside through his head hole, and you could float like little plastic toys like fish skeletons and apple cores and bones inside, and it was gross and awesome and kind of reminded me
0: of Glob. I bet a lot of parents had to scrape that shit out of carpets.
1: Uh, Yes, and my parents did, but the thing is when you come back to a toy like that, say, I don't know, 10 years later when you're coming back from after college, you see that not only is it a cool action figure that has a visible brain and eyeballs and stuff inside, but that the liquid has separated and gotten really slimy and started to leach out through the plastic and it smells really, really bad, so I wonder if this Glob Herman toy would do that too.
0: No, because this isn't going to be that. This is going to be. This is going to have sort of a, a gel base. It's going to be squishy. Um, it should also be highly flammable. The second toy is No Girl. Legit. I'm not sure if it would actually be like the brain on risers, or if it's just that No Girl is one of the toys in this little empty packet.
1: <laughs> Kids would be so disappointed, and parents would be so entertained.
0: I'm really good with that either way. The third is Shark Girl.
1: Oh yeah, she could have like chompy action. That would be rad.
0: Yes. Most definitely. The fourth, because we're going with cool toys, which usually goes with gross powers, it's totally going to be skin.
1: I feel like that toy would be like Stretch Armstrong, and like Stretch Armstrong would probably be banned and recalled.
0: No, because he wouldn't have, like, gooey filling. He would have a solid, like, action figure base, and his skin would be separate and stretch out from it. It would be really cool. And, like, it would probably get floppier if you heated it up or something.
1: I feel like that might get banned and recalled for different reasons.
0: Yeah. Next, again, going with cool toys would obviously be Warlock.
1: Could a toy ever live up to Warlock's awesome design, though? I feel like you make that thing three-dimensional and solid, and it loses something.
0: Yes, but it would not be toddler-safe, because what you'd need is, you know those magnetic sculptures that are made of all of the tiny pieces that you can just sort of play with? It would basically have to be one of those. Oh man, so many
1: babies would die.
0: It would be a great toy, though. And finally, you really can't have a good X-Men figure set without Strife.
1: Speaking of toddlers dying, but you're totally right. You got to have strife.
0: Call me McDonald's. I don't want to work for you, and I have bad ideas.
1: We are a fully listener supported and uh not fast food supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgment from various fictional characters and concepts and Happy Meal toys. So, um let's talk to the angry Clermontian
0: narrator. Look at you, Jeremy Thomas. You thought you had what it took to play with the big kids, to make your mark on the world, to go nowhere but up. But gravity's a harsh mistress, ain't she? And now, Jeremy, here you are, sitting next to Ryan Curtai, like you always knew you would, somewhere deep inside, where your self-doubt lives with your common sense. And on on that uh, cheerful note, I will turn turn the mic over to the much more cheerful, Sexy Prosh.
2: As another sentient mechanical being once put it, oh gosh, oh golly, oh wow. It is delightful to have a body after all these centuries. Arms, legs, and, well, I'm trying to figure out the rest. Matt Boothman, it's a little embarrassing to ask, but can I borrow your bathtub? I've heard things from cable about what you can do in a bathtub and he won't answer my new questions about it now that i'm not a spaceship oh you you do wonderful but it's only five feet long no that's not what cable described at all i need plenty of room for my torso and legs and the torso and legs of an attractive humanoid like a lot of room i was hoping that humanoid could be you but i'm afraid there's simply no space Jeff Sobol and Chris Perardi. I spent so long as a big rectangle that I'm incredibly excited to figure out what all of these parts do. Do you have the type of bathtub large enough for me to understand sexuality? You... you do? Oh, glorious! Will we all fit? Should I invite Matt Boothman? Or maybe Shinobi Shaw? I hear he knows all about sex.
0: And with that... Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by the very patient Matt Hunter.
1: New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com.
0: Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions for every episode, and if you want to, pre-order Thor Metal Gods from SerialBox. Box.
1: Our show is 100% listener supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad free, check out the Patreon link at the top of ExplainTheXMen.com.
0: Next week, Warren Ellis begins his run on Excalibur with the Soul Sword trilogy.